Last time we spoke about the battle for Bunangona. The American and Australian forces pushed the Japanese towards the Bunangona area with their backs against the wall and nowhere to retreat. As a result, the defenders began fighting to the bitter end. Wave after wave of American and Australian ground assaults were met by concealed bunkers holding machine guns and treetop snipers. The New Guinea offensive was going to be a few long weeks of carnage for both sides in a brutal war of attrition. We also talked about the Americans on Guadalcanal making another push west of the Matanacau. Their objective was to secure territory up to the Poha River and to harass the already brutalized Japanese forces after their failure during the last attack on Henderson Field. And thus today we're going to continue both stories, first with one very long patrol that's purpose was to hunt down the Japanese trying to escape being encircled at Koli Point, trying to get back safely to the western part of Guadalcanal. This episode is Carlson's Long and Bloody Patrol. Welcome back to the Pacific War Week by Week podcast. I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment on episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I am now releasing a seven-part series on China's warlord era. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. Back on November the 4th, two companies of the 2nd Raider Battalion of Colonel Carson, those being companies C and E, landed at Ola Bay, alongside a battalion of the 147th Regiment and 500 Seabees. Their mission was to secure the area and begin construction of a new airfield on Guadalcanal. Now during the Battle of Henderson Field, the right wing led by Shoichi, that royally messed up and missed the action altogether, well they were told to head for Coley Point afterwards. The Tokyo Express had dispatched a run on November the 2nd, landing 300 troops of the 230th Infantry Regiment, two mountain guns, provisions, and ammunition to Coley Point. The Americans had received radio intelligence about the landing, and this led Vandegrift to believe the Japanese would mount a major attack upon the eastern part of the Lunga defensive perimeter. However, because of the Battle of Henderson Field, Vandegrift only could spare one battalion, that being the 2nd Battalion of the 7th Marines led by Colonel Herman Hanneken, to march east from Lunga Point to meet the new threat. Hanneken's men were hit badly by the Japanese forces taking significant casualties and they were pushed across the Metapona River, then the Nalambu River, and even further west. Hanneken made contact with his superiors telling them the situation was quite dire and that he needed reinforcements. Alongside the radio distress call, Vandegrift received a captured Japanese document outlining a plan to land the remainder of the 38th Infantry Division at Coley Point in preparation for an offensive against the eastern defensive lines. Yet unbeknownst to Vandegrift, the Japanese had abandoned those plans. This led Vandegrift to pull back the men performing an offensive to the west of the Matanikau so he could deal with the new eastern menace. Lieutenant Colonel Polar mustered his 7th Marines onto boats to reinforce Hanneken, and within three hours a large-scale commitment began in the east. 
Two tank companies rolled down the east coast to join Hannigan, joined by the 164th Infantry en route to the Nalambil River. Brigadier General Rupertus took control of the Joint Service Expedition. To give the Marines and Army forces a longer reach, Lt. Col. Manley Curry's 3rd Battalion of the 10th Marines brought over some 75mm pack howitzers. The Cactus Air Force added their support by tossing 31 aircraft that caught Shoji's detachment on the last legs of its march towards Coldy Point and inflicted around 100 casualties upon them. Unfortunately, the Air Forces also hit Hanakin's men, adding to their misery. When Shoji finally made it to Coldy Point, he found 131 sick survivors of Ichiki and Kawaguchi's efforts. By November the 4th, the action towards Kokumbona had simmered down, and in the east it had reached a pause at Nanimbu. The leading elements of the Sendai Division had finally reached the 17th Army HQ, but they remained too far away to do anything at Kokumbona. Sugita received reinforcements in the form of the 3rd Battalion of the 4th Infantry Regiment, but by the time they were available, the American offensive was abandoned. Vandegrift had pulled back the 5th Marines in the Whaling Group to meet the crisis in the east, and left the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 2nd Marines with the 1st Battalion of the 164th Infantry to hold a position just 4,000 yards shy of Kokumbona. At the very least, the Americans had thwarted the Japanese from being able to use artillery to shell Henderson Field, from the Matanikau or from Mount Austin. Over in the east, Polar's men reached the Nalambu, and Rupertus began reorganizing the forces east of Lunga. In the meantime, the cruisers Helena, San Francisco, and destroyer Sterret bombarded the Japanese at Coley Point. And it was at this point the 2nd Raider Battalion was ordered to join Rupertus, who had recently arrived at Aeola. The Aeola airfield construction had turned out to be a bust, however. The grounds were not suitable for an airstrip, and by November the 22nd, the mission was simply cancelled. Rupertus ordered the 164th Infantry to cross the eastern bank of the Nelumbu so they can envelop the inland flank of the Japanese who were confronting the 7th Marines. On November the 6th, the 7th Marines crossed the Nelimbu, while the 164th carved a channel through the jungle to the coast. The next day, the Army Marine Force pushed a mile west to the mouth of the Metapona River, where they dug in. The day after that, Shoji's regiment and some new reinforcements dug in along the Gavaga Creek at Tetteri about a mile east of the Metapona River, while units of the 164th continued to encircle them. Now the Japanese were stuck in a pocket at the Gavaga Creek, and they figured out that they were surrounded. The 75mm pack howitzers began to rain hell upon the Japanese, forcing them to lash out south to escape the mayhem. The systematic extermination of the pocket extended until November the 12th, taking the lives of an estimated 450 Japanese. Shoji slipped out through the south with 3,000 hungry and very exhausted men, now trying to trek it all the way back to the 17th Army HQ on the western side of Guadalcanal. They would have to retrace their march to the Matanikau, but they would not be alone. The 2nd Raider Battalion, aka Carlson's Raiders, were ordered to pursue the fleeing Japanese. Now, it was already mentioned in the series, but just to refresh memories, Carlson had organized this unit using some concepts that he had learned from Chinese communist guerrillas. They were hand-picked, given the best equipment, and Carlson used egalitarian and team-building methods, with an emphasis on minimum regard for rank. Men were simply leaders or they were fighters. Carlson used the phrase gung-ho, which means work together, as a motivational slogan that he had learned from the Chinese communist guerrillas. Vandegrift ordered Carlson's raiders to march overland to cut off the enemy forces that had managed to escape the Kohli action. So for all practical purposes, both Shoji and Carlson 
they disappeared into the jungle to fight their own campaign for over a month. The first major clash came on November the 11th when elements of Shoji's command ambushed the raiders. Carlson had sent forward companies F, E, D, and C to patrol the area just north and west of a place called Binu. At 10 a.m., Company C was moving towards the village of Azamana, where they came into contact with a large body of Shoji's men near the Metapona River. They were quickly pinned down, and Carlson reacted by tossing Companies D and E over to help them, by hitting the enemy from two different directions. By 12.30, things escalated into an intense firefight, and at 3 p.m., Company D, led by Captain Charles McAuliffe, alongside nine of his men, ran back to Carlson's base cap at Binu. He reported that the rest of his company had most likely been annihilated, having been cut off by the enemy. A short time after, the rest of the Company D, led by Sergeant George Shiar, showed up, leading Carlson to relieve McAuliffe of his command. Carlson described the decision to be based on, quote, his total inept for leadership in battle. Company F soon showed up to Binu, prompting Carlson to push towards where Company C was still fighting for its life. At 4.30pm, Carlson ordered F Company to attack the Japanese position facing C Company, but by the time they engaged, the enemy had left. The Marines suffered 10 dead, but it's estimated that they had killed an astounding 120 Japanese. Carlson the next day took three companies west towards the village of Asamana, capturing two Japanese soldiers along the way. When they reached Asamana, the Marines managed to surprise and kill several soldiers holding up in the village, indicating it was a rallying point for the enemy. Carlson ordered the men to take up defensive positions around the village to wait and kill any Japanese who might emerge, and this ended up resulting in 25 more deaths for the Japanese. On November the 13th, a Japanese company approached Asamana, and the 1st Battalion 10th Marines used their 75mm artillery to smash them, killing many and scattering the survivors straight into the jungle. By the 14th, Carlson returned to Binu for provisions and rest, while his F Company went on patrol and stumbled upon a small Japanese encampment and killed 15 enemy there. On the 15th, Carlson changed the base of operations from Binu to Asamana. After the 15th, Carlson's raiders were ordered to head up the Teneru River to patrol around the Lunga River just a bit south of the Lunga defensive perimeter. The Americans figured Shoji's men might try to use the trails they had made during the assault at Henderson Field, looking for leftover supplies, because they were starving after all. It would also allow Carlson's boys to find and destroy several Japanese artillery pieces left behind after the failed attack on Henderson. The raiders set up a new base camp two miles southeast of the Lunga perimeter by November the 20th and rested up before commencing operations again on the 25th. Raider Company A had just arrived from Espiritu Santo on the 25th and by the 27th they had joined the battalion as an auxiliary patrol going further up the Teneru River. On the 28th, companies B and D ran patrols across the Lunga River and further southwest towards Mount Austin, while companies A and F patrolled further south between Lunga and the Teneru. On the 30th, the raiders found a Japanese 75mm mountain gun and some 35mm anti-tank guns placed on a ridge. Upon more prodding by Company F, they soon found a hidden Japanese camp holding 100 soldiers who were resting under shelters with their weapons stacked against some trees. The marines stormed the encampment, slaughtering an estimated 75 Japanese while the rest fled for their lives. On December the 2nd, B Company discovered 10 Japanese camping out by the Lunga River and killed them all. None of the other companies found any more Japanese, but one company did find another 75mm mountain gun. The next day, Carlson got orders to end the patrol and to take his men back to the Lunga defensive perimeter. 
On December the 3rd, companies C, D, and E were heading east towards the Tenaru River, while companies A, B, and F headed west towards Mount Austin. Companies C, D, and E reached the lower Tenaru and entered the Lunga perimeter without any incident. Meanwhile, companies A, B, and F ran into a Japanese patrol near the summit of Mount Austin. They all fell into a close-quarter fight in the jungle, resulting in 25 dead Japanese, with four Marines severely injured and one eventually would die. The next day, companies A, B, and F were making their way back to the Lunga perimeter when they were ambushed by a Japanese machine gun team killing four raiders, but it did cost the Japanese another seven dead. By mid-afternoon, all the raiders had returned to the perimeter. On December the 4th, Carlson reported killing 488 Japanese at the cost of 16 marine deaths and 18 wounded. Shoji's main body had been reduced to just 1,300 men when they reached the Lunga on November the 20th. Several days later, when they rejoined the 17th Army HQ, they had just 700 to 800 survivors, of whom maybe 30 to 60 men retained fighting ability. It was a harrowing experience for Shoji's men. They had practically no food. They were all suffering from tropical diseases, the countless ones that we mention in pretty much every episode, and they were hunted by a group specialized in guerrilla tactics. The perfect cocktail for pain. And it was not just Shoji's men that suffered. Carlson's men had also gone through the jungle gauntlet as well. Over 225 men were evacuated to the rear during the long patrol suffering from ringworm, dysentery, malaria, and other illnesses. The rations were inadequate for the time they had spent in the jungle, leaving countless weakened. Eventually, Carlson's raiders would have to depart Guadalcanal in December declared unfit for combat. But now we are going back to the Bunagona front. The two unsuccessful attacks of November the 19th and 20th were frustrating General Douglas MacArthur, who had come to Port Moresby back on November the 6th to order the New Guinea Blitz. MacArthur gave the order, all columns will be driven through to objectives regardless of losses. The defenders at Buna and Gona were isolated. The wire connection to the South Seas HQ at Girawa had been cut. To dispatch messages, troops literally had to swim out into the sea and go around the Australian perimeter. Now MacArthur's all-out offensive was launched on the 21st, and this would include a three-pronged attack against Buna from the Warren Force. They would toss three companies, one against the coast, one in the center, and one on the left, hitting the eastern end of the new strip. Alongside this, three bombing missions were ordered to commence in the morning. In the meantime, the Urbana force was going to push from Ango towards Girua. Now the order for the Buna attack had not been received before the first aerial mission in the morning. Thus the ground forces failed to take advantage of it, attacking almost an hour after the bombing. The bombing failed to neutralize the Japanese positions, and to add insult to injury, they bombed the 3rd Battalion of the 128th Regiment's position. The battle lines were so indistinct, and the enemy fortified positions were so well camouflaged that the A-20s and B-25s dropped their loads from medium to low altitude. When units of the 3rd Battalion began to get hit, many of the men ran further back and their officers were forced to push them back to the front lines. Morale was breaking. When the three-pronged attack commenced, they were met with fortified Japanese positions. Machine gun fire was cutting them to pieces. What they needed was huge artillery support. But General George Kenney had convinced MacArthur that his aircraft would be able to replace the much-needed field artillery that was so difficult to move up to Buna. The Warren Force's three-pronged attack was a complete fiasco, resulting in barely any ground gained, 
Only the Australian commandos of the second Australian independent company managed to clear some machine gun nests and killed some of the treetop snipers. But the Australians had to pull back when the other two American units failed to take any ground. After two weeks of fighting with terrible loss of life and barely any progress, General MacArthur made the decision to sack the field commander, General Harding. He was going to be replaced with General Robert Eichelberger as leader of the American forces. MacArthur told him, I want you to remove all officers who won't fight. Relieve regimental and battalion commanders if necessary. Put sergeants in charge of battalions and corporals in charge of companies. I want you to take Buna or not come back alive. MacArthur's impatience from the lack of progress pushed him to put more and more pressure on his commanders, and this triggered rasher actions that would cost more American and Australian lives before the Buna fight would be won. But until Eichelberger would get there, the fight would continue. Some good news came. The Dobodura airfield had been completed and could be adequately supplied. The 2nd Battalion of the 128th Regiment had been marching from Ango and had reached a fork on the track to Gurua in an area known as the Triangle. The Triangle was three points of Japanese defenses. The right branch led to the Buna government station. The left led to Buna village, and the middle pointed outwards from the fork in the track. The men of the Urbana force were ambushed at this fork, and they were forced to plunge into some deep swamps to escape annihilation. General Harding knew one battalion would not be enough to gain the grounds in the west, so he convinced General Vasey to send the 2nd Battalion of the 126th Regiment to back the men up, facing the Triangle. In the meantime, Harding began to readjust his coastal positions. He ordered the 3rd Battalion of the 128th Regiment to join up with other forces around the seashore that had made no progress in over three days. Colonel Alexander McNabb unofficially took command of the Warren Force on November the 23rd after General McNider had become severely wounded while he was inspecting frontline troops. McNabb ordered the men to immediately try and infiltrate the enemy positions under the cover of two 25-pound artillery pieces. Lack of observation, as usual, rendered the artillery ineffective and the men were unable to advance more than 100 yards before machine gun fire became way too fierce. Back over at the tip of the triangle, the Urbana force tried a second assault through some neck-deep swamp and mud. Their motor shells got wet and failed as their machine guns became clogged and jammed to their utter misery. Nonetheless, Harding had ordered an airstrike against the triangle November the 21st. And similar to other airstrikes, 12 fighters showed up and strafed the Urbana force HQ instead of the Japanese positions. The Urbana force pressed its part of the three-pronged attack, supported by four 25-pounders. The frontal assault was stopped by some strong barbed wire defenses, while its right wing tried to take some slopes of kunai grass, failing to get past enemy machine gun fire, and they were forced to turn back, while the left wing circled around Entrance Creek, meeting similar intense gunfire. The left wing tried to dig in, but the swampy area just pushed water straight into their wannabe foxholes. When the Japanese saw the left wing digging in, Captain Yusada ordered his SNLF Marines to counterattack, driving the Americans out of their foxholes and further back into the swamps. The Urbana forces part of the three-pronged attack was a catastrophe. By November the 25th, they would begin to retreat further back. Though one positive note for the Urbana force was through the assaults, they now knew the enemy positions were much stronger on the right flank rather than the left. Thus, they would have a better place to concentrate the next attack upon. The right wing required the men to go through a swamp and move 200 yards across to open kunai fields, which exposed them to machine gun fire. 
The left, however, was a bit more open with spots for cover. The new plan of action was not just to concentrate on the left flank, but to bypass the apex of the triangle towards Buna village. They would get the men onto a grassy strip that rode along the left fork of the track. Colonel John Moat officially took command of the Urbana force, and the new attack was scheduled for November the 30th. Back over at the Warren force, a new offensive began on November the 26th, added by new reinforcements. The Bull Force and Hall's Detachment, adding two mountain howitzers and six 25-pounders alongside them. Alongside the much-needed artillery, a large airstrike was ordered, over 50 aircraft this time. P-40s and bowfighters strafed the enemy positions and A-20s bombed the rear of the enemy. After the airstrike, the artillery unit bombarded for 30 minutes until 9.30 a.m. when the 3rd Battalion advanced along the right side towards Cape Andandere, while the 1st Battalion moved towards the strip point. The aerial bombing and the artillery had failed to suppress the Japanese bunkers, thus the offensive was going to meet the usual machine gun chaos, alongside a Japanese airstrike coming out of Leh. The offensive met the same conclusion as the last ones, thus yet again the Warren force had to pull back in failure. As McNabb's men were providing no results, Harding began to plan another offensive for the Warren force set for November the 30th, to be conducted simultaneously with the Urbana force. Now over in Gona, Brigadier Ether was preparing to launch an offensive on November the 22nd. The 2nd Battalion of the 33rd Regiment, backed up by the 2nd Battalion of the 16th Regiment, were two miles within the reach of Gona, and would continue to advance along the track. The Allies had to advance across some open patches of kunai grass and swamplands where machine gun pits could rain hell upon them, and further to the east in coconut groves which were ridden with treetop Japanese snipers. As the Allies advanced, they were dished heavy casualties, prompting Ether to order the 2nd Battalion of the 31st Regiment to help the 2nd Battalion of the 33rd Regiment, as they advanced upon the eastern flank of Gona. As seen countless times, the men would traverse through swamps or open kunai grass patches to be gunned down by concealed bunkers. Those who managed to reach the machine gun pits were simply cut down by crossfire. Eventually, the 2nd Battalions of the 31st and 33rd Regiments had to pull back prompting Ether to send the 2nd Battalion of the 25th Regiment to join the Eastern attack on Gona. By November the 23rd, little ground had been gained and the forces were further reinforced by the Cha Force, the 21st Brigade led by Lieutenant Colonel Hugh Challen. The Allied attack on the east was battered. Nonetheless, Ether ordered another assault, this time to hit from the southwest across the Gona Creek. Some wearaways performed a strafing attack on November the 24th, just before the 3rd Battalion began to advance under artillery cover. The men managed to advance about 50 yards before the machine gun fire became too intense and they had to withdraw. On November the 26th, the Japanese tossed a counterattack which almost managed to get around the right flank of the 2nd Battalion of the 33rd Regiment. But they were eventually blocked by the 2nd Battalion of the 25th Regiment and they had to withdraw back to their bunkers. At this point, Ether realized he needed more men, and luckily for him, General Vasey obliged by sending up the 21st Brigade led by Brigadier Ivan Doherty. The 21st were earmarked to arrive on November the 30th, just in time for the new offensive. Over in the San Ananda track, Brigadier Lloyd's men were bitterly fighting Colonel Tsukamoto's South Seas Detachment. On the night of November the 21st, the leading companies of the 2nd Battalion, 3rd Regiment were advancing up the track to relieve the battered men of Captain Catern's detachment. Catern's original unit of 91 men had been greatly reduced. They had 21 dead and 36 wounded. 
Alongside this, the 16th Brigade had lost a third of its original strength, just 1,041 out of a 1,869 men. By November the 22nd, the 3rd Battalion of the 126th Regiment showed up and began to envelop the main Japanese position. Thus, Lloyd's men were given some brief rest as the Americans came to do some of the heavy lifting. To the amusement of the Australians, the American troops would pass by them saying things like, You can go home now. We're here to clean things up. Well, the American advance was, as you may have guessed, not easy. Because of logistical issues, the American offensives were postponed a few days. In the meantime, an Australian company had been sent to try and sneak around the left flank of the Japanese position to get to Cape Killerton, where there was a planned offensive being made for the 21st Brigade. They reached the Killerton track by November the 28th only to find out it was nothing but swampland blocking the path further east. General Vasey then ordered more patrols to fan out to find a way to cut the San Ananda track, but the efforts proved to be fruitless. Things were all lining up for major offensives to occur on November the 30th, but that will have to wait until next week. To finish off this week's episode, we're actually going to venture all the way to Brisbane, Australia, for a rather bizarre event that will become known as the Battle of Brisbane, between America and Australia. Now you see, beginning in 1942, over a million Americans began pouring into Australia. Many were, as you would say, coming and going, sending foot in Australia before being deployed to offensives in the Pacific, or wounded coming back from deployments. Many of these American units were stationed around Brisbane, where General Douglas MacArthur had his HQ. Starting in December of 1941, the population of Brisbane was around 330,000, and they got a boost of about 80,000. Brisbane found it quite difficult to cope with so many Yanks, there were many brownouts, crime increased, schools closed, many families sold their homes and simply moved away. Now, the Australian and American military personnel enjoyed a lot of cooperation and friendship. Honestly, this is a time when a sort of brotherly bond was emerging between the two nations. But where there can be conflict, conflict will, of course, occur. There were things that simply drove tension. For example, the American forces received better rations than the Australians, and as good hosts, the Australian government pushed businesses to give preferential treatment to the Americans. Many hotels, shops, and most importantly, bars were opening their doors much more for the Yanks. Many heavily rationed goods such as chocolate, ice cream, certain meats, cigarettes, alcohol, and such were more easily available to Americans through their trading posts. These were basically retail stores that the U.S. military had in various friendly nations, known sometimes as post-exchanges or base exchanges. While the Australians had to pay an arm or a leg to get highly rationed goods, the Americans were prancing around easily obtaining them. On top of this, the Americans were paid significantly more than the Australian military men. The American uniforms were nicer looking. The U.S. Army were given silk stockings and candy, which, as you might guess, the American men often gave to the Australian women, alongside other ration goods they could purchase. As one Sergeant Bill Benston recalled, The Americans had the chocolates, the ice cream, the silk stockings, and the dollars. They were able to show the girls a good time, and the Australians became very resentful about the fact that they had lost control over their own city. 
Thus, the Americans were enjoying a lot of success pursuing the local gals. One reporter recalled in mid-1942, while walking along Queen Street, that he saw over 152 local women in the company of 112 Americans, while just 31 women were accompanying 60 Australian soldiers. By the end of World War II, over 12,000 Australian women would marry American soldiers. To put it simply, the Yanks and the Aussies were different types of people, and it was very noticeable when it came to chasing women. The Australian population really only knew Americans as they had seen them from Hollywood movies. They thought they were all wealthy, glamorous and such. The Americans were extremely polite when it came to women, prone to displays of public affection, something that was a cultural no-no for Aussies at the time. Americans had no issue coming to women on the streets asking if they wanted to go see a movie, or go dancing, or even go to some of their special bars that were open just for them. Women were restricted from going to certain places unless they were accompanied by a serviceman. If you look at it from the perspective of the Australian women, it was an extremely exciting time to live. Women were entering the workforce, doing the jobs restricted to men for so long. These strangers just showed up, not conforming to the cultural norms of your society, and they had a lot of money. They were overly polite, and they could get you to places that were restricted and get you things that were also restricted or rationed. Many of these women were taking their first steps into some real freedom. Hell, women were barred from bars until the 1960s in Australia, if you could believe that. Australian men, like the British, went to pubs, usually to get away from their wives. But these Americans, they went to bars to find women. It was the complete societal reverse. And don't get the wrong picture of it all being sunshine and daisies. There were reportings of rapes and murders that occurred by the hands of American servicemen. Regardless, everything would come to major conflict in November of 1942. During a few weeks before November the 26th, the Australian authorities reported over 20 brawls a night were occurring between Australian and American servicemen. Several major incidents went down like a gun battle between a few Americans and Australian soldiers near Inkerman, which left a Yank and an Aussie dead. One American soldier was arrested for stabbing three servicemen and a Brisbane woman near the Central Railway Station. One Australian soldier was shot by an American MP in Townsville, and so on. There were many conflicts brewing. Now, according to the Australian historian Barry Ralph, on the night of November the 26th, one private named James Stein of the American 40th Signal Company left a hotel quite drunk at 6.50pm. He began to walk over to the post exchange on the corner of Creek and Adelaide Street when he was stopped by three Australians. Private Anthony O'Sullivan of the 814th American Military Police went over to ask Stein for his leaf pass. While Stein was drunkenly trying to find it, O'Sullivan became impatient and simply arrested him. The three Australians began to swear at the MP demanding he leave Stein alone. Now both the American and Australian servicemen had a bit of disdain for MPs because they thought them far too arrogant and too loose with their batons. O'Sullivan raised his baton as if he was going to hit one of the Australians, so they attacked him. Some other MPs saw this, they began blowing whistles and nearby Australian soldiers and civilians rushed to help their countrymen. Far outnumbered, the MPs ran for their lives to the post exchange carrying the injured O'Sullivan with them. 
A crowd of 100 really angry Australian servicemen and civilians began to besiege the post exchange, throwing bottles and rocks at it. Local Australian police arrived to the scene, but there was little they could do, and soon the American Red Cross Club, sitting just diagonal with the post exchange, was under siege as well. This led to brawls breaking out all over the city. Servicemen were ordered to get back to their barracks, or ships, and Australian soldiers were escorting women out of the city throughout the night. It is estimated 5,000 people were involved in this debauchery. Several Australian MPs took off their armbands and joined into the chaos. One Corporal Duncan Caporn stole a small truck driven by an Australian officer and three soldiers, and the truck in question contained four Owen submachine guns and a bunch of ammunition and hand grenades. Some dangerous stuff. The 738th MP Battalion in the besieged post exchange began to arm the MPs with shotguns to protect their building and many of the MPs began to push the crowd away. In the front of the building, Private Norbert Grant jabbed an Australian with his gun prompting the Australian gunner named Edward Webster of an anti-tank regiment to grab the barrel while other soldiers were grabbing the guy's neck. During the scuffle, the gun went off three times. One shot killed Webster. The other shots hit Private Kenneth Henkel, Private Ian Tiemann, Private Frank Corey, Saper DeVoso, Lance Corporal Richard Ledson, and two civilians, Joseph Hanlon and Walter Maidman. In the shock and confusion, Grant managed to flee back to the post exchange. By 10 p.m., the crowd dispersed, and a war correspondent, John Hind, who witnessed the scene from his hotel balcony, described it as such. The most furious battle I ever saw during the war was that night in Brisbane. It was like a civil war. Now you'd think one night of chaos was enough, but you'd be sorely mistaken. The following night, a crowd of 500 to 600 Australian servicemen gathered outside the Red Cross building. Over at the post-exchange building was a large contingent of heavily armed American MPs, and likewise on the first floor of the Red Cross was also heavily defended by some men. NCOs began to go to the crowd confiscating several hand grenades. Whoa. On Queen Street, a group of Australian MPs ran into 20 American MPs who formed a line and drew pistols. One Australian officer quickly intervened asking that the American MP commander take his men away from the area to avoid bloodshed. Soon the Australian mob marched to the corner of Queen and Edward Street and began screaming at General MacArthur's HQ which makes me smile writing about. My god, I just can't escape this guy. And really, you have to imagine, the guy responsible for the bonus army debacle getting heckled by rioting Australians. I can't help but imagine MacArthur holding his revolver inside his HQ, telling the men that they had to storm like the crowd or something. Anyways, the Australians and GIs defending the building brawled, and 20 guys got injured. One of my favorite quotes from this entire event occurred right after. One American sergeant, Bill Benston, who took part in the action on both nights, recalled after the brawling simmered down that he went to a pub and quote, An Aussie would come beside me, slap me on the back, and say, Oh, wasn't that a good ruckus we had the other night? Have a beer on me. It's the most Australian thing I've ever heard. Overall, the first night saw one Australian serviceman dead. Eight people had gunshot wounds from the three shotgun blasts, but uh, none others died and several hundred other people were simply injured in the brawls. 
The second night, eight American MPs and one other serviceman and four officers were hospitalized. The city had had enough. Units involved in the riots were relocated. A ton more MPs were brought in and the post exchange was moved. There were a few court martials and a lot of rumors about more fatalities that were unaccounted for. It was a dark turn for the two nations that had been coming together and it prompted Australian Major General Frank Berryman to try and educate the Australian forces on how important it was to keep a cordial relationship with the Americans as they needed them to win the war. Berryman and Blamey took measures to integrate closer ties to the two forces in the field, though MacArthur was very against this, showing a lot of dissatisfaction with the Australian performance, particularly the 32nd Division. Not all was right down under. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kingston Generals over at YouTube. So please, go subscribe to Kingston Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingstongenerals. And don't forget about our sister podcast over at The Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you give my personal channel a look, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I'm just now releasing a seven-part series on the Chinese warlord era. Give it a look, and it mean a lot to me. And so the brutal long patrol by Carlson's raiders struck a deep wound into the Japanese on Guadalcanal. The fight at Bunagona had become a bit of a stalemate, but the Japanese were being bled dry, and they had nowhere to run. And over in Brisbane, men were simply losing their minds over the local gals, and a few fists were thrown.